0: Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. So, Let's try to picture the scene in Antioch in the spring of 129 BC. Queen Cleopatra Theia, now 35, has been ruling Syria for over two decades, including several extended periods with husbands off at war. For the last nine years, since Antiochus VII's defeat of Deodirtus Tryphon, she'd been ruling a united Syria stretching from the Taurus mountains of Anatolia to the Sinai desert of Egypt. She was certainly comfortable wielding power, and had likely developed a personal following within the Seleucid court. She was also mother to several sons, who'd secure the kingdom's future. The latest dispatch from her husband Antiochus reported a stunningly successful eastern campaign with the Parthians poised to become Seleucid vassals. All this framed Thea's mental picture in the spring of 129. Then, one day, a royal attendant approached the queen with an odd report. Sorry to bother you, majesty, but there's a bedraggled, bearded, foreign-looking fellow trying to gain entrance to the palace. Noting the obvious yes and in her glare, the attendant then likely blurted out, Oh, and he says his name is Demetrius the Second, and that he is the Seleucid King, and oh yeah, that he's also your husband. It may not have been quite that awkward, but who knows? It could have been worse. Whatever homecoming Demetrius expected, he was bound to be disappointed. In his mind, he was still the valiant young king who'd spent two long years fighting Mithridates and every minute since his capture trying to get back home. He knew that his brother, Antiochus Seventh was still off fighting Frates in Media. But in the meantime, he probably just expected a role reversal. Demetrius would be the one to secure the home front while his brother was off at war but he failed to consider one critical factor—Cleopatra Thea. She was holding down the home front quite nicely, thank you. And what did Demetrius bring to the table? Well, first off, lest we forget, the Seleucid capital of Antioch still despised Demetrius for unleashing his army of Judeans and mercenaries and burning the city to the ground— Second, seriously, what's with the beard? Do you really want to highlight that you've been a Parthian prisoner for a full decade, during which they may have brainwashed you into supporting their agenda? Oh, and speaking of which, how's your Parthian crumpet rhodaguna and your adorable little brood of parthlings? So, yeah, ouch, but also good points. Syria was stable, Antiochus VII was winning, and Demetrius's presence would only generate confusion or outright hostility, which was pretty much what Frantis had hoped for when he decided to cut him loose. Either way, Demetrius was an uncomfortable reality. One Thea was forced to manage. His return was announced, and Seleucid Mint struck coins with his image. Big bushy Parthian beard right there for all to see. But, tellingly, only three cities initially minted for Demetrius—Sidon, Tyre, and Damascus— As historian John D. Granger notes, no coins in Demetrius's name were produced in the great northern cities, in particular Antioch. In fact, Antioch would never mint any coins of Demetrius during what's commonly called his second reign. At the moment, it was a very joint reign— with his powerful wife Thea, and his equally powerful and widely adored younger brother, Antiochus the Seventh. But just a few weeks after Demetrius's return, news reached the capital of Antiochus the Seventh's death in media. Diodorus Siculus reports that when the death of Antiochus became known in Antioch, The whole city mourned, and every house was full of wailing, especially from women who bemoaned his great loss. Which is little surprise since, considering the size of Antiochus's army, there were likely few households unaffected by the loss of a husband, father, brother, or son. We can only imagine the depth of the loss to Theia and Demetrius II, both personally and with regard to the kingdom's future. To be honest, once they'd absorbed the shock, they must have initially focused their energies on preparing for a Parthian invasion. It'd be some time before they'd learned that Frantis II had returned to Parthia, and no such invasion was imminent. Thea decided to take precautions and sent her son by Antiochus VII, the Seventh, the four year old Antiochus, to the relative safety of Anatolia, which was only safe because, as mentioned last episode, the Pergamine conflict was finally winding down. Her two older sons by Demetrius, The 15-year-old Seleucus and 14-year-old Antiochus remained with their parents in Antioch. If anyone was happy with Demetrius' return, it was likely his teenage sons. To them, he was the brave king who'd led armies in battle, spent years in the lands of the mysterious East, then come back home in the nick of time to ensure the kingdom's future. His presence also confirmed their preeminence in the Seleucid line of succession. And, last but not least, Demetrius offered a potential counterweight to domination by their mother, Cleopatra Thea. The Antiochenes, of course, were a tougher sell. For many citizens, Demetrius's return didn't so much offset their losses as grievously compound their miseries. And, once again, some dubious hashtags started trending on Twitter. According to historian Jake Nabel, Demetrius was commonly referred to as Seripides, which had two potential origins. If it was Aramaic, it may have meant the little-bound prisoner— if it was Greek, it may have meant Iron Man, which didn't mean he was cool like Tony Stark, but referred to his life in chains. Either way, it was hard to miss the point. It's in this relatively tense environment that a visitor arrived at court. Who was it? Well, it was no less a figure than Cleopatra the Second the queen of egypt and the mother of cleopatra thea in 129 bc cleopatra the was 56 her older brother and former husband king ptolemy the 6th had died 16 years earlier at the battle of the anoparus river her younger brother and former husband The 53 year old Ptolemy Physcon was still waging a civil war to try to recapture his kingdom. By this point, he'd recovered the majority of Egypt, with the huge exception of Alexandria, which still backed Cleopatra II. And, according to Justin, on arriving in Antioch, she quickly got to the point. Cleopatra promised Demetrius the throne of Egypt as the reward for his assistance against her brother. There's a whole lot to go into here, and Granger does a great job of exploring all the angles. First off, why did Cleopatra II wait to ask for help until after Demetrius' return? Why not ask her daughter Thea while both her husbands were away? Well, it's possible that the Civil War against Fizcon might have reached a tipping point where Cleopatra couldn't last much longer without seleucid help, but it's also true that up to this time, Thayad refused to pick a side on a personal level, given Fizcon's history and reputation, One might assume that Thea'd rather have her mother in power. But Thea was also completely aware of her uncle's tenacity and ruthlessness, and was understandably reluctant to provoke him. The fact that Physcon was currently married to Thea's younger sister, Cleopatra Third may have also complicated things. So, what about offering Demetrius the Egyptian crown? Well, You may recall that the Seleucid king Antiochus IV had nearly conquered Egypt back in 168. That time the Romans had drawn the circle around him and shipped him back to Syria. There was also the time in 145 when the Egyptian king Ptolemy VI had considered taking the Syrian crown, but decided against it so as not to antagonize Rome. On both occasions, an additional factor had been the huge expanse of the Seleucid Empire and the prospect of ruling a combined kingdom stretching all the way from Libya to the Caspian gates. Not that it couldn't have been governed effectively, but it certainly presented a challenge. But the quote-unquote good part of the recent Parthian victory was that the Seleucid Empire was limited to Syria and Cilicia, and a joint Seleucid-Ptolemaic kingdom was clearly much more manageable. In fact, as Granger points out, such a kingdom may have been the best hope for preserving both royal dynasties. With the Parthians looming off to the east— and Rome steadily encroaching from the west, the Macedonians needed to join forces to be an effective counterweight. Sure, the Romans might not approve, and sure, it might even spark a war. But wasn't that preferable to a slow, grinding death by a thousand cuts? Geopolitical strategy aside, the main driver was immediate and personal. Cleopatra II desperately needed help and would offer almost anything to get it, including sharing her throne. But the other big question what did the offer mean to Demetrius? He'd literally just gotten back home after a decade spent in Parthian captivity and was now being asked to go fight a war in Egypt. And even stranger, Demetrius seemed totally up for it. This is where his relationship with Syria and his relationship with Cleopatra Thea really come to the fore. Demetrius's relationship with Syria had been adversarial from the very start, and if he needed confirmation that memories ran long, he'd been shown it pretty decisively. Antioch may have been a bit of an outlier, but the general thrust was that nobody wanted him back, with many thinking he was likely a Parthian puppet. On a personal level, Demetrius' marriage to Rhoda Guna and possibly Thea's marriage to Antiochus Seventh, seemed to have driven a permanent wedge between them. So, yeah, sure, why not? Give me a few minutes to gather an army, and I'll meet you down in Egypt. Given the destruction of Antiochus' forces, not to mention Demetrius' forces from a decade earlier, a significant portion of the new army was likely mercenaries. That being the case, it didn't hurt that, according to Justin, Cleopatra II had set the treasures of Egypt on board ship and brought them with her to Syria. By spring of the next year, 128, Thea was watching another husband with another army marching out of Antioch. And, all things considered, it's hard to guess what outcome she hoped for. If Demetrius succeeded, and Physcon was somehow captured or killed, Thea'd be forced to assert her claim in whatever scenario resulted. On the other hand, Demetrius tragically dying in battle was far from a worst case scenario, leaving Thea to govern Syria alone in the name of her underage children. The prospect she likely feared the most was Fizcon launching a counterattack and somehow shifting the battleground from Egypt to Syria. And hold that thought, because unfortunately, Fizcon is way, way, way ahead of you. In fact, the moment his sister left for Syria, Fizcon had set a plan in motion, one he'd had in the works for quite some time. You see, Fizcon had possession of a 21-year-old boy named Alexander. Who was he? Well, he was the son and heir of the former Seleucid king, Alexander Ballas. Or he was the son and heir of the recently slain Seleucid king, Antiochus VII. He claimed to be both at various times, which strongly implies he was neither. In fact, he rarely seemed to fool anybody. But on the flip side, it didn't seem to matter much. Alexander's nickname is actually my favorite among all Seleucid rulers or pretenders. It was Zabinus, which is Aramaic for the purchased one. So everybody knew he was bought and paid for, but that didn't slow him down one bit. If anything, I've underplayed how deeply Demetrius was despised in Antioch. Because the minute his army marched off south, the entire city revolted. Justin reports that the local leader was a man calling himself Tryphon, Obviously a callback to Demetrius's old nemesis. But soon enough came the main attraction. Alexander Zabinus landing on the coast at the head of a mercenary army. Arriving in Antioch and announcing he was, you know, kind of connected in one way or another to one Seleucid king or another, the people warmly embraced him. Because, as Justin notes, the Syrians, in order to escape Demetrius's tyrannical behavior, would not reject any king whatsoever. How did Thea react to events? it's a bit of a weird one, and there's not much good info. First off, having been married to both Alexander Ballas and Antiochus VII, she knew that Zabinus was not her son. But with all the Antiochenes flocking to his banner, it was dangerous to call him a liar. In what may have been a defensive move, Thea ordered the Antioch Mint to produce a series of coins in the name of her son Antiochus, possibly Antiochus seventh son, whom she'd sent to Anatolia. But it was only a brief run, and it ended up being a final gasp before Zabinus secured the city. Because at the perfect moment, the royal pretender was gifted with some golden PR. Well, technically, it was silver. Justin reports that, in the meantime, there arrived the body of Antiochus Seventh, who had been killed by the king of Parthia. Set in a silver casket and sent back to Syria for burial, it was received with great emotion by the cities and, in order to give credence to his own story by King Alexander. The scene won him great support amongst the people, everyone thinking his tears were not forced but genuine. So, reading between the lines, Zabinus claimed to be Antiochus's son, even though the age difference did not even remotely work, and leveraged his acting skills into a role as Seleucid king. So, all hail King Alexander Second Zabinus, I guess. Thea's well-honed survival skills compelled her to take two actions. The first was to ship her younger son by Demetrius II, the 15-year-old Antiochus, off to Athens for safety. Then she took her eldest son, the sixteen-year-old Seleucus, and left Antioch for Ptolemais Acho. Whether she traveled by land or sea, it likely gave her time to ruminate on how everything had gone so completely wrong so fast. More bad news greeted her in Ptolemais in the form of Demetrius II. According to Granger, Demetrius's army had arrived at Pelusium to find the fortress strongly held by the forces of Ptolemy Physcon. News of the revolt in Antioch and insufficient local supplies led Demetrius's troops to mutiny and force a return to Syria. So, for the umpteenth time in Seleucid history, it was time for another stalemate— with dueling claimants to the Syrian throne holed up in two different capitals. Granger notes that coins of Demetrius II were minted in Ptolemais, Acho, Sidon, Tyre, and Damascus, while coins were minted for King Alexander II in Antioch and Apamea. Other cities remain contested or mold over thoughts of independence. And you also know that you can't spell stalemate without including Judea. Back when Antiochus VII had died in Media, Hyrcanus and his Judeans, who'd likely been garrisoning Babylonia, had quickly returned back home. As soon as the chaos erupted in Syria, Hyrcanus saw a golden opportunity to expand Judean dominance. In fairly short order, He captured the city of Madaba, sacked the Samaritan temple of Mount Gerizim, then went south to attack the Idumeans, who were forcibly converted to Judaism. We know very little of the events of the next year, 127 BC, except the stalemate continued to drag on. And honestly, Ptolemy Physcon had gotten way more than his money's worth. His original plan for sending Zabinus was to distract Demetrius II enough that he couldn't make war on Egypt. But his protege actually ruling most of Syria? That's a pretty amazing bonus. And whatever else he was or wasn't, Alexander was apparently an effective commander. Preserving his gains, staunching rebellions, and harassing Demetrius' allies. Diodorus reports that when three distinguished officers of Alexander revolted from him and briefly besieged and captured Laodicea, Alexander generously spared them all, for he was of a mild and gentle disposition and a pleasing temper, and therefore he was greatly loved by the mass of his subjects." In 126, Josephus reports a major battle between Demetrius and Alexander, recording that Demetrius was beaten in the fight and fled to Cleopatra, his wife, at Ptolemais. Granger notes that the battle likely took place near Damascus, which switched from minting coins of Demetrius to coins of Alexander the following year. And get ready for the reality show record scratch, because, according to Josephus, when Demetrius showed up at Ptolemaeus' Acho with his retreating army, his wife would not receive him. Yep, that's right. Cleopatra Thea refused to let her husband, the legitimate Seleucid king, back into his own temporary capital. Aside from personal animosity— and there may have been a truckload of that, I can only assume that letting him in risked putting the city under siege. A siege that would have threatened not only Demetrius's life, but also Cleopatra Thea's. It's one of the colder decisions she'd made, but it wasn't entirely heartless. After all, Demetrius had more loyal cities along the coast, so let him find refuge in one of those instead. I can imagine the couple's son, Seleucus, arguing bitterly against her decision. But Thea refused to change her mind, and Demetrius was turned away. Justin reports that, abandoned even by his wife and children, Demetrius left with a few slaves. He left for Tyre, intending to use the sanctity of the temple to protect himself. Which probably means the temple of the Tyrian city god Melkart. Justin continues, But as Demetrius disembarked from the ship, he was killed on the orders of the governor. Josephus adds the additional detail that when Demetrius had suffered much from his enemies before his death, he was slain by them. So Alexander took the kingdom which means Alexander Zabinus, but not so fast, because Demetrius II had an obvious heir, his eldest son by Cleopatra Thea, Seleucus. Since the very beginning of the Seleucid Empire, the eldest son always inherited the throne on the death of his father, except for imprisonments, usurpations, or a regency by the queen when the boy was too young. But Seleucus was 18, so that exception didn't apply. And on news of his father's death, he announced he was taking control of the kingdom as King Seleucus V, which is when Cleopatra Thea killed him. Yeah, not sure you saw that one coming. But the more you think about it, the less surprising it seems— First off, Thea had already had three husbands killed—Alexander Ballas, Antiochus VII, and now Demetrius II. Not to mention her father, Ptolemy VI, which showed how pointless it was to rely on anyone else to protect her. Second, her current position was extremely vulnerable, with Zabinus on the verge of conquering all of Syria— not the optimum time to go all-in on a young, untested king. There's also the possibility that her son was angry, possibly even furious, that Thea had driven his father away to a brutal death in Tyre. Apart from merely losing power, Thea may have feared retribution, some form of imprisonment or possibly even death. So, maybe she just decided to strike first. But also, let's be honest. After ruling Syria for so many years, Thea may have decided that no one, not even her son, was taking away her throne. Most of this is sheer speculation. We know what we know about Cleopatra Thea and virtually nothing about young Seleucus. And we also have no real idea of how Seleucus V was killed. It may have happened during a heated argument or in a moment of cold calculation. Either way, Thea likely had some loyal retainers who were given orders to kill the legitimate Seleucid king, who was also her eldest son. It's hard to overstate just how heinous a crime— and how huge a break with Seleucid tradition this was. It's also impossible to enter Thea's head and guess how it affected her personally. But I can say that the dry reports of the ancient sources don't nearly do it justice. Justin reports that Seleucus assumed the crown without his mother's permission and, as a result, was assassinated by her. And Livy refers to commotions in Syria, in which Cleopatra murders her husband Demetrius, and also his son Seleucus, for assuming the crown without her consent upon his father's death. However it happened, Seleucus V was, very likely, the shortest ruling Seleucid king, with a reign measured in days, hours, minutes— possibly even seconds. Otherwise, his bloody end was only unusual by coming at the hands of his mother. And here's where we reach what I call the Walter White point of our story. Because ideally, you want to try to understand and even sympathize with your protagonist, even when she or he starts breaking back. And for a while, whatever they do, you cut them a bit of slack. But there comes a point where you finally realize that you can't keep following them down that road. That they've crossed a threshold you can't understand. And there's only darkness ahead. Listeners, I bet you just enjoyed this episode of the Ancient World Podcast. How could you not? If you're craving more Ancient World content, look no further. We are Dr. G and Dr. Rad. We host a podcast on Ancient Rome called The Partial Historians. If you're interested in getting behind the story of Rome and you giggle at the phrase Roman booty, <laughs> join our conversation. You can find us by searching for The Partial Historians or at partialhistorians.com. We're active on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Hope to see you there.